Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. It's December, and we've made it to the end of 2021. This was another year dominated by COVID-19 in the field of social protection, and we've certainly spent plenty of time talking about that on this show. But while we were preoccupied with the pandemic, what else did we miss? In this episode, our three guests each spotlight non-COVID-related news, papers and events from the year just gone that we thought deserved some more attention. We'll talk about how to design safety nets to reduce gender-based violence, the role of social protection in food systems and to mitigate climate change, a call for Latin American countries to develop welfare states, and more. We'll also ask our guests for their New Year's resolutions for 2022. First up, I'm speaking with Alessandra Heinemann. Alessandra is a Senior Social Protection Specialist and Gender Lead in the Global Practice for Social Protection and Jobs at the World Bank. Welcome, Alessandra. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start by looking back to June this year when your team launched a very practically oriented toolkit looking at how to design and implement safety nets to curb gender-based violence. So first of all, What do we know about how social protection programs can reduce gender-based violence in general? So there's a growing body of evidence finding that cash transfers reduce violence against women and children, even when the cash transfer was not designed with violence prevention as an objective. Those of us who've worked on cash transfers for a while know that again and again, we find that cash transfers have unintended positive consequences. Uh, But I really think that this finding is tremendously exciting given, one, how pervasive gender-based violence is, and two, the massive drain it represents on uh, human capital and well-being. Research is being published all the time, solidifying this evidence pattern for different country contexts. So not only do cash transfers um, curb violence against women and children, but also the effects can be really substantial and comparable uh, to the effects of standalone violence prevention interventions. In terms of how this happens, researchers hypothesize that there are three impact pathways by which safety nets can reduce um, gender-based violence. The first is by reducing uh, poverty and food insecurity, thereby limiting the potential for conflict in households. The second is by empowering women, uh, increasing their status in communities and reducing their dependence on others. And the third is by increasing women's social capital, boosting their self-esteem, self-efficacy and uh, support networks. So I think as social protection practitioners, these findings are really super exciting and we should take them on board and ensure that we're doing what we can to to leverage the potential of safety nets to reduce GBV. One of the things this paper makes clear is that you aren't talking about going away and designing specific social protection programs or cash transfers for the purpose of reducing gender-based violence. What you're talking about is looking at the standard set of social protection interventions that already exist and thinking about how to tweak designs and implementation to address those three potential drivers of women's empowerment. So with that in mind, can you give us a quick overview of perhaps the top five practical steps you'd like to see designers and implementers of social safety net programs take in order to improve outcomes for gender-based violence? So I would really encourage uh, people to check out the toolkit as a whole. It's structured like a cookbook. So the intention is that you shouldn't have to read this cover to cover, but 
but you should be able to dip in and out of it and find the recipe that you're looking for pretty quickly. The organizing principle is the social protection delivery chain. So even if you're done with your design phase and your program is under implementation, you should still be able to find tips and tweaks that are um, relevant to your context. And um, if I had to highlight five design tips, I would say, number one, don't forget to involve the men. It's absolutely essential to engage the household as a whole, and in particular, husbands or mothers-in-law or whoever the gatekeepers are in a given context, especially when you're uh, working with a program that targets women exclusively. The rationale, of course, is that you want to minimize any risk of backlash um, and build support for women's participation in the program. Number two, I would say communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, so of course, you know, good programs communicate throughout their implementation, but I think in particular, it's worth investing in the outreach and enrollment phases of a program. And I think it's worth exploring whether you can communicate program objectives in a way that helps nudge gender norms towards greater equality. Number three, I would say where possible, pay transfers to women and do so digitally. And also explore how you can bundle cash with accompanying measures that builds women's skills, their confidence, and their support networks. Number four, harness the power of women's groups. Evidence is clear that women's groups are an accelerator for empowerment. So whether these are savings groups or self-help groups, I think we should build on existing women's groups wherever possible to try and encourage group formation and interaction among women uh, throughout the program activities, such as training and coaching. And finally, I would say measure what you treasure. You need to make sure that you monitor whether the measures you put in place are having the intended effect. And while it's not advisable to routinely collect data on GBV, as this comes with specific ethical requirements intended to protect people from harm, I think there are other data points that can yield clues as to whether your safety net is reducing GBV. So for example, you can ask women whether they're able to influence how the cash transfer resources are being spent, if they're involved in household decision-making, how conflicts are resolved in households, and whether they feel connected and supported in their communities. I think all of that can give you a clue as to um, how well the program is working in terms of reducing violence. This is, of course, a very sensitive topic, and there is a lot of good advice in this paper about how to ensure your efforts aren't actually endangering people. There's practical advice about data collection, and you mentioned labelling. You know, labelling interventions to encourage health and education outcomes is quite standard in social protection, but it's also interesting to think about how those labels can help to protect women and allow them to participate and benefit from programs. What else would you like to draw attention to from the year that has just been? So I think it's been a really exciting year for social protection and gender. I think there's, of course, an ambition to build back better as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic. And I think for social protection, that means designing programs intentionally for gender equality and women's empowerment. I think we're seeing a shift from gender being this box that you need to tick to programs that are really thoughtful about seizing various opportunities that collectively add up to big gains. I think programs are increasingly paying women digitally, engaging men and boys, providing childcare, tackling social norms, addressing GBV. And I'm hopeful that collectively these bundled interventions will um, get us towards greater equality and that we'll move from gender being this niche area of interest to one that is really core um, to good technical design. Excellent. 
And finally, thinking ahead to 2022, do you have New Year's resolutions for yourself or perhaps for the sector? So one of my New Year's resolutions uh, that I'm excited to make progress on next year um, is on gender data. Our main tool for tracking the size and distributional performance of social protection and labor interventions at the World Bank um, is the so-called Aspire database or the Atlas of Social Protection Indicators of Resilience and Equity. It's a compilation of indicators generated on the basis of admin data and household surveys. And Aspire also serves as a tool to monitor progress towards Sustainable Development Goal 1, which we know is about social protection. So up until now, Aspire did not include sex disaggregated social protection data uh, for a number of reasons, but that will change in 2022. The team is re-engineering its household data process to automate the generation of sex disaggregated indicators where that is possible. And they've also developed a new admin data collection tool that captures important parameters such as the sex of the recipient, the provision of and participation in complementary measures, or whether digital payments are being used to pay benefits. So I think this will be a really rich resource and it'll help us learn a lot in particular about cash plus measures and access to digital payments by men and women. Yes, as you say, given that so much of the World Bank's very influential analysis about the impact of social protection programs comes from these household-level surveys that are aggregated through Aspire, it's a bit of a gap and it is great to be thinking about how you can make that data more powerful and representative than it already is. Alessandra Heinemann, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Next up, I'm speaking with Garima Bala. Garima is an economist and social protection specialist in the social protection team of the Food and Agriculture Organization. Welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you, Joanne. It's great to be here. So first up, you're going to take us back to the Food Systems Summit, which was held in September, convened by the UN Secretary General as part of the Decade of Action to Achieve the SDGs. For those less familiar with this topic, what do you mean when you talk about food systems and what was the summit set up to address? So food systems are networks made up of literally everyone and everything that is involved in the production, aggregation, processing, distribution, consumption, and disposal of food products that originate from agriculture, forestry, or fisheries. It also includes the social, political, economic, and legal and environmental aspects and context within which these actors are embedded. So very broadly speaking, you can think of three umbrella categories of outcomes that food systems generate. The first one is food and nutrition security. So they perform a central role in determining the quantity, quality, diversity, and the nutritional content of the foods that are available for consumption. Second category you can think of is sustainable livelihoods and economic inclusion. And a third one you can think of is environmental sustainability. So the outcomes of contemporary food systems have fallen short of the aspirations of the 2030 agenda. We have not been progressing either towards the Sustainable Development Goal Target 2.1 of ensuring access to safe nutrition and sufficient food for all people all year round, or towards the SDG Target 2.2 of eradicating all forms of malnutrition. The global prevalence of food insecurity has been rising since 2014, and unfortunately, the last two years have only hastened this upward trend. 
Agriculture is responsible for up to 80% of biodiversity loss and continues to overuse increasingly scarce natural resources, including water, forests, and land. By one estimate, uh, food systems contribute up to 29% of all greenhouse gas emissions, you know, therefore significantly contributing to climate change. And then there's the, the other aspect where current food systems continue to exclude vulnerable populations. As food systems have become more concentrated and global, vulnerable and poor segments of society continue to face barriers to participate in different value chains and obtain decent work. So there is a need for change. And that's the context within which the UN Food Systems Summit was held this year. It was an opportunity to build partnerships, work plans, and commitments to create an improved understanding of the different trade-offs and synergies within food systems and to guide or to really steer the future development of these systems towards being more inclusive and uh, sustainable. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see social protection systems fitting in within that broader systemic approach? Yes, sure. So social protection is an important policy instrument through which the overarching goals that I had mentioned earlier can be achieved. These were reducing hunger and improving access to healthy diets, promoting decent work, supporting economic inclusion, and that is the generation of livelihoods and building capacities to strengthen income. They also uh, help to enhance resilience of vulnerable households by reducing negative coping mechanisms to shocks. And they can also help in improving natural resource management and sustainable agricultural practices. So one specific social protection policy instrument that I'd like to talk about today is school feeding, especially homegrown school feeding programs, which are a type of a school feeding model that is designed to provide children in schools with safe and nutritious food that is sourced locally from smallholders. I think homegrown school feeding programs are a great example of a systems approach. What's innovative about these programs is that they have multiple objectives and they have immense potential to make progress on these uh, multiple objectives. So one is, of course, related to education, which is to increase enrollment, attendance, and retention rates. Now, the second is on nutrition and health, so enabling better diet diversity of the children who are attending these schools. Now, the third one, which comes in through the local procurement aspect, is economic, the generation of livelihoods and an increased income to the smallholders from whom these food grains and foodstuffs are being procured. So it creates these new market opportunities for local farmers that are stable and predictable. There's also importantly an environmental aspect to it. Depending on the types of foodstuffs that are being procured, you can influence the types of crops uh, that are being grown locally. You can increase biodiversity and also encourage climate smart agriculture. And shorter supply chains, by definition, are beneficial to the environment. One such program is the Kenya Homegrown School Meals Program, and it utilizes this strategy of institutional food procurement for procuring food locally and then providing it to primary school children. As of 2020, it covered about 1.6 million children, and it has in the past and even currently strong political commitment and government ownership. That's a great example of how a social protection approach like school feeding, which I think is traditionally considered to be about education and nutrition, as you say, 
can also be designed to address the different but nevertheless very important needs for local livelihoods and environments. Coming back to the Food Systems Summit, what were some of the important things that came out of that event for you? So one of the important aspects about this Food Systems Summit was that the UN member states were invited by the UN Deputy Secretary General to nominate a high-level individual from within their governments to convene a series of member state dialogues as part of this Food Systems Summit process. And there have been a series of these national and subnational dialogues leading up to the summit and also beyond the summit, which will contribute to the development of national pathways towards sustainable food systems. So you have over 100 governments that have developed their national pathways by now and have put them online on the food systems website. And moving on now, is there anything else that really stood out for you in 2021? Yes, I mean, this is right after the COP26 climate summit. The World Bank has launched a paper written by Jamel Rigolini, which outlines the links between social protection and climate change adaptation and mitigation. And I think much of next year, a whole host of us will be grappling with some of the key questions that this report presents us with. It, it says that, look, even without really explicitly trying to incorporate environmental objectives within themselves, social protection programs, of course, strengthen resilience against climate shocks. We know that. But it goes on to say that if you were to integrate elements into these programs that substantially increase the ability to respond to climate change shocks and facilitate a green transition by supporting equitable policies, then they can have a massive contribution in making this just transition uh, occur. It, it basically outlines the different types of social protection instruments and how they can support both adaptation and mitigation. So just to give you an example, we know how cash transfers can help in adaptation by building household resilience, but then you also have payments for environmental services, which are also a type of cash transfers, which are really in place to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. So there's plenty of more work that needs to be done in trying to really understand the potential of how we can be working with these different types of social protection instruments. Thank you so much. As you know, the theme for this episode is what else is happening in social protection other than COVID-19. And in this discussion, we've talked about everything from food systems to value chains to climate change. So you've really broadened our horizons. Finally, do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2022? Well, I think it would be good to temper expectations on what social protection programs and policies can achieve in isolation. I think that would be a good New Year resolution to have. And I would also put the premium on coordination. So coordination, not just for the sake of it, but to develop coherent approaches that require effort across multiple sectors. Now, I say this because these social protection programs do not exist in a vacuum. Other processes in, and programs in place have to create an enabling environment for these programs to succeed. So whether it's a homegrown school feeding program or an economic inclusion program, building partnerships across different ministries, departments, different 
civil society organizations is extremely important. And I would love to see more of that happening in the future. It sounds like we all have our work cut out for us. Garima Bala, thank you so much for the time you've taken to talk to us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And finally, we have Armando Barrientos, who is Professor Emeritus of Poverty and Social Justice at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester in the UK, and McCattle Fellow at the Global Dynamics of Social Policy Collaborative Research Centre at the University of Bremen. Welcome, Professor Barrientos. Thank you for coming, me. So in September this year, the Economic Commission for Latin America, which goes by the acronym ECLAC, has renewed its call for Latin American countries to build welfare states. For those outside of the region, what is ECLAC and what has prompted this call? ECLAC, the Economic Commission for Latin America, is a regional bank, the Asian Development Bank and other banks elsewhere. What is interesting is that CAS always had a special interest in social policy and in social protection. So when Nicola was interested in welfare states in Latin American countries, it was encouraging countries to develop in that direction. Uh, I think we should take notice. There was also the situation that we're still in the middle of the pandemic. And I thought it was a, a really nice point to say, let's lift our gaze from the situation we're finding ourselves in, let's look ahead uh, and see where, where we were going or where we want to go. In responding to this call, how would you characterise welfare systems in Latin American countries currently? Of course, Latin America is a big region, so there are significant differences between, say, southern and South American countries in the southern cone that have long-standing social protection and then you have the Andean region, which is slightly behind. And then you've got Central American countries that have very limited social protection aside from Costa Rica. And then you get Mexico, which has, has been developing its, its social protection systems for a while. So you've got differences, but life is short. So I'm going to talk about Latin America as, uh, as a unit, right? Now, the best way to characterize social protection in Latin America is to say that there are two systems. So one region, two systems, because there is one system for people who work in formal employment and they have access to occupational pensions, they have access to health insurance. In some countries, they have access to individual retirement plans. And then there is another set of policies which are directed to workers in low-income employment and, of course, informal employment, and that is social assistance. So you have occupational insurance for the better of workers, and you have social assistance for the low-income and informal. About 50% or just over 50% of workers in Latin America, taken as a whole, work in, in informal employment. So it's basically 50-50 between formal employment and informal employment. So you have these two systems uh, in, one, in one region. And of course, one of the policies that come out of ECLAC calling for welfare states is that we need to unify this. Somehow we need to have just one single system for everyone. So what sort of welfare state is ECLAC talking about here? Okay, let me say a couple of things. I'm afraid I'm going to become the academic that I am. And I'm going to say, well, you have to be very specific about what welfare states mean. 
welfare states in Spanish estados de bienestar are associated with developments in social policy in European countries after the Second World War that basically introduce comprehensive universal provision of basic services like education and healthcare and protection of workers in employment and with a great deal of policies addressing the kind of insecurity in employment, like unemployment insurance and so on and so forth. But what is really important is also to understand that this was part of a much bigger uh, view of how society should be arranged. Welfare states in European countries are committed to democratically regulate the private sectors in order to ensure that everyone benefits from the economic activity. So there is not just the kind of welfare institutions that these countries have, which many of them perhaps already exist in some form in Latin American countries, but the commitment to regulate the private sector to the benefit of all, that is what is really important. Also, welfare and states are both important, not just welfare institutions, but also a, a social commitment to a more egalitarian type of society. Is there political appetite, do you think, for larger and more comprehensive European-style welfare states? That, that is really what is the million-dollar question, in a sense, because European countries got their welfare states through a, a democratic process, which usually involved a coalition between what they described as working class and middle class voters, right? So it was a long-term commitment to supporting these kinds of uh, institutions. And really, that is perhaps what has been missing in uh, Latin American countries. For example, take the issue of industrialization. The welfare states in European countries came uh, alongside a process of very rapid industrialization. Now, Chile and Argentina, in sort of 1910, had about 25% of the labor force working in, in some form of manufacturing. So in a sense, sort of Latin American countries had a, a chance very early on to develop their welfare institutions into welfare states, and they didn't. And the reason is the lack of political coalitions that were supported. So I guess the other multi-million dollar question is, has, has that changed at all? And particularly, I guess, in the context of COVID-19 and the widespread social and economic impacts of the pandemic. Well, COVID-19 has encouraged much greater discussion about social policy, but I'm a bit more cautious in thinking that this is perhaps a significant step change. One of the reasons is that this is a very unusual type of social crisis because the crisis comes out of the pandemic. It's basically the government telling workers, you must stay at home, and I'm going to try to support you in staying at home to reduce the rate of infection. So it's not the typical economic crisis, for example, 2008 or, or earlier in most Latin American countries, where the problem was that the economy wasn't working properly. It wasn't generating jobs. It wasn't providing sufficient income for people. This is a very different type of thing. Some people suggest that COVID-19 has increased support for social policies. Well, let's see. Uh, at the same time, it has reduced the fiscal space for governments to actually do something about it. So I'm a bit cautious as to whether this will change. 
But what is more interesting to me, at least, is the degree of political ferment in Latin American countries. You have Chile with a new constitution, you have governments of different types in different countries, you have an increase in, in the visibility of social movements, indigenous movements, territorial movements, uh, gender issues. And I think if anything is going to bring forward a, a change in social policy, it's going to be the extent to which social movements are able to connect to policymakers and say, well, this is what we want. Do you agree with ECLAC? Has, has it made the right call? Right. Well, I'm not sure. If what ECLAC has in mind is to emulate the example of European countries, I'm not sure that it's on the table. I mean, I, I reside in the United Kingdom, for example, and I very much doubt whether if the discussion was on today, people would still go for some kind of welfare state because everything is moved. Politics is moved. People don't want to pay taxes. You know, there's much greater polarization in terms of politics and in terms of economics. So I, I don't think that if, if the model is a European model, that that is feasible today. At the same time, I do think that there are very significant reforms in Latin American countries in the last 20 years or so in the, in the new century that have moved towards a more inclusive type of social protection and social policy. And of course, all, all, old age pensions, conditional income transfers, family transfers, child transfers, they, they are all moving in that particular direction. So I think that the view that we got to move further in terms of having inclusive welfare institutions that are comprehensive, that provide basic services, that provide protection and employment. I, I think that will move forward in, in the next few years. And finally, what are your New Year's resolutions for 2022? Yeah, well, I got two resolutions. My first resolution for 2022 is the need for Latin American countries to accelerate uh, a, a rebalancing of their social policy towards children and towards social investment. Traditionally, historically, our welfare institutions have been focused on older people in terms of pensions, for example. Pension expenditure is the largest part of social protection expenditure in all countries. But I think we need to focus a lot more on children. Rates of poverty among children in Latin America are around 40%. And it's really important that we cannot develop policies that will successfully address that issue. And my personal resolution is that I want to write a book on social protection in Latin America. And I hope that by this time next year, I'll be able to say, well, here it is. Professor Barrientos, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. You're very welcome. Finally, this month, we're looking back on our own wins. With me here is the team from socialprotection.org that produces this very podcast to talk about our favourite episodes from the year. Patricia Veloso, Knowledge Management Officer at socialprotection.org. What's your pick? Hi, Joe. My favorite episode is definitely episode four about Brazil's flagship cash transfer program, Bolsa Familia. 
I've always been interested in understanding why some policies were chosen over others or why specific features had more momentum than others. I asked on Twitter which were the first programs that came to mind when we talked about social protection, and Bolsa Família was the one with the most mentions, which as a Brazilian made me particularly happy. Um, I like this episode because we had as guests the very people that were involved in the program design and implementation, telling us about the political context and the decision-making processes that are often left out of research, the behind the scenes. So I'm looking forward to having another episode of that kind. And if you have any suggestions, we would be happy to hear. Yes, and in a surprising development soon after we recorded this episode, Bolsa Familia was actually concluded after 18 years of operation and replaced with a new scheme called Brazil Aid. It's quite striking to contrast what directions the implementers thought the program should go in and what actually happened, which we also tease out a little bit in the episode, so it's well worth a listen. Nina Brunale, Knowledge Management Assistant at socialprotection.org. What's your favorite episode so far? So I'm kind of cheating here with my answer, but I'm going to pick a six episode series we produced with GIZ and ODI in June and July this year as my favorite. The episodes were separated into different themes like gender, urbanization, and informal workers. And at the end of every episode, the guests were asked whether or not they thought COVID-19 was a turning point for social protection. And I just feel like I learned so much from all the speakers my favorite episode, if I had to pick one in the series, was the one about ODA financing for social protection. And one of the best parts for me was when they explained that many countries created a safety net during the 2007-2008 crisis, which helped them respond faster to the pandemic. And this made me feel really hopeful that when this crisis is over, we will have in place the infrastructure that will help us ensure we're even more shock responsive in the future. So I really think this episode and all the others in the series are worth a listen. And we're planning to develop more multi-part series like this one in the next year, so watch this space. Larissa Toluso, Knowledge Management Assistant at socialprotection.org. What about you? Hi, Joe. The episode I like it most by now is episode seven, The Path Towards Social Protection Floors for All. This is because I loved how the episode brings a perspective of different actors that are trying to advance the topic from ILO, partner governments, civil society. It was really interesting for me hearing a very clear and objective definition of social protection floors alongside a country experience. Also, having a civil society perspective for me was key in understanding the debates and challenges on this such important topic. I'm looking forward to more episodes like that. That was our most recent episode, which came out in November. And as for me, I have a soft spot for our first episode, which was about women in leadership through the COVID crisis. Our four women guests from government, academia and civil society, they were so frank about the challenges they had faced, in some cases, their assessments of weakness or failure. You got such a strong sense of how hard they and others had worked. It was really just a great lens through which to understand the COVID response. Thanks, team. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Our collective resolution is, of course, to bring you more episodes of the Social Protection Podcast in 2022, kicking off in January with a look at one of the most contentious topics in the field, universal basic income. 
So follow socialprotection.org on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and make it your New Year's resolution to leave a review. Back next year. See you then.